when I first envisioned that, I kind of thought we were going to have words at the bottom. And I admit that may be my miscommunication that that didn't happen. If those words were not terribly accessible to you this morning and you want to take a look at them in your Bibles, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. But I'll be referring, I'll be quoting parts of it throughout the sermon. So my youngest daughter, Annika, likes to make these drawings with red and blue marker that are kind of like illusions. They're not much to look at at first glance, just a confusion of red and blue lines that are kind of hard to decipher. But she'll hand me a pair of these old-fashioned 3D glasses with the one red and the one blue lens. And she'll tell me, Mama, put these on. Close your left eye and look at the picture. And now open your left and close the right. And using these different lenses, I'll see a smiling cat through one side and a crying one through the other. The lens determines which reality I see in front of me. We started this morning with a lament. And the biblical act of lament is an example of how God gives us a very different lens than the one used by our surrounding culture. From the viewpoint of North American culture, lament is not necessary. There's crime and there's punishment. There are victims and there are perpetrators. Politicians, companies, individuals, and groups will claim victim status when they can because otherwise, they may be perpetrators. I'm really generalizing here, but think about this later. Apply any recent scandal you can think of and see if it checks out. These categories of victim and perpetrator are insufficient for us. We, the church, need a spirit-given lens that leads us towards biblical lament in the face of pain and brokenness in our world and in our communities. In the act of lament, we cry out to the God of justice when we've been harmed by others. I'm gonna pause here. Am I the only one who's ringing in my ears or am I ringing in your ears too? Feedback, there is, okay. I'll talk louder if y'all turn me down a little. I don't know if that'll work. I just don't wanna torture people. You're not hearing me anyway? I'm just up here hearing myself. <laughs> How loud do y'all want me to talk? <laughs> that better? All right. I don't normally preach with my big girl voice. In the act of lament, we cry out to the God of justice when we have been harmed by others. We cry out to the God of compassion when we have harmed others. And we cry out, oh, listen to that. We cry out to the God of reconciliation when we have hurt and neglected one another. We look to the God of redemption to heal and transform us. And being a body of many parts, we often do all of these things simultaneously in the hopeful act of biblical lament. By crying out, Lord, have mercy, 
We ask for God's redeeming grace to enter into a murky and persistent reality where harm caused within the community affects the whole community. The Apostle Paul understood something about viewing life through different lenses. Paul was certain that he saw things clearly when one day God suddenly blinded him on the road to Damascus. After Paul's sight was restored, he seemed to see the world from a completely different perspective. And God helping him, he shared that perspective with the growing church. In the first lines of our text today, Paul brings forth a common image of the day. He says the body has many parts. Community as body imagery was used in Paul's day to help people understand their role in society, to help them feel like they were part of something larger, and to explain the need for hierarchies so that they wouldn't feel so bad about their lower place in that society, which most of them had. His hearers would expect Paul's letter to say, the body has many parts, and so it is with you. But Paul goes off script, and he says, and so it is with Christ. Here, the common image of the body warps unexpectedly for the Corinthians. The Corinthians are not making up the body of a typical Roman society, but the body of Christ, whom Paul proclaims as God. Strange. Even stranger, in a world where one's position in society and on the hierarchy determines their place in the body, Paul just casts away identity markers that would have defined his hearers their whole lives. Are they Jews, Gentiles, slave, free? Nah, doesn't matter. We are all given one spirit to drink, he says. So what's going on here? We somehow have an image of slaves and citizens, Jews and Gentiles, drinking together as equals, and that is not a thing that would have been happening. And drinking the spirit, what does that mean? Is it connected to the gifts of the spirit that Paul was talking about a few paragraphs ago? Whatever it is, this is not the usual body politic speech. The usual body politic speech, like one given 500 years earlier, famously, by Menenius Agrippa, the famous Roman consul, that one invokes body parts that are angry with the stomach who's in control of their labor until they try to starve the stomach and then they realize when they start to wither that they need the stomach to thrive if they're going to live. And so they submit to its rule. But rather than tell that story, Paul goes off. He presents us with a foot that compares itself to a hand and an ear that compares itself to an eye 
and they're all wondering if they belong in the body. And then he says, God has placed each part in the body, every one of them, just where he wants them. So God, and God only, has placed us. Our heritage and our rank do not place us. And somehow we all drink of one spirit. At this point, the hearers of the letter are grasping that this is a different sort of body than the one that they are accustomed to envisioning. And his letter goes on to say that the body parts cannot simply declare themselves independent of other parts of the body. This simply is not an option because God has put them in the same body as he chose. There are no expendable parts. So far, Paul has been carefully preparing the hearers of his letter for the new lens he wants to show them. But now, he has to try to remove the old one that they have seen the world through their whole lives so they can see the new lens. And to do this, he makes three very interesting comparative statements, followed by a conclusion. The first one. Now go back one, I think. Oh yeah, no, it's that one. Oh, I have a different view. There, we're good. Sorry, we're good. So the first one. He writes, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Can you see two competing lenses here? In the body politic, some parts do seem weaker, but in the reality of the body of Christ, they are essential. His second comparison. Those parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Paul is doing something incredible here with shame culture. Are these parts really less honorable? No. Paul tells us that we just think they are. And why? Why do we think that? Paul gives us a clue in the language. The word that we see here is treat means to bestow or to clothe. I want to ask folks that are here in the room with me, when in the Bible do we first read about clothing the parts of bodies that suddenly seemed less honorable than they did a moment ago? Yeah, I didn't even have to give you guys the clue about fig leaves. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. The only thing that changed about Adam and Eve's perfect and honorable bodies after the fall was the lens through which they now viewed them. They suddenly had a lens of shame that came from sin when they viewed their bodies. One of the many warped viewpoints that the Corinthians and we here in Grimsby would inherit. Back in the garden, God clothed Adam and Eve to protect their lovely bodies from this new shameful way of being seen and seeing one another. 
And Paul invites his hearers to see that Jesus has removed the source of our shame. And that while we are in this world, the Holy Spirit gives us garments of honor to wear. His third statement. Our NIV translation has this next part as, the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. I'm gonna ask for your patience because we have to go a little bit off script here. The NIV is a very readable and understandable and good Bible translation. And when the NIV committee finds awkward and clunky wording, they smooth it out for us so we have a better reading experience, and that is good. But sometimes we need to wrestle with the awkward and the clunky, and I think this is one of those cases. A more literal but less readable version of Paul's statement would be something like, the unpresentable parts have or possess a more abundant decorum which the NIV translators probably thought would sound odd with the next words, which would have been, and the presentable parts of us have no need. See how that would have been clunky? So I don't blame them. But I want us to look at this first part, so that's why I stuck it up there in Greek for you. Do you see the word eche? It means to possess or to have or to hold. So with apologies to the NIV committee, this isn't about how we as humans treat these members of the body. There is a truth here that we can only grasp with a spirit-given lens. The parts of the body of Christ, that is, the people, that we view as unpleasantly different with the lens of our surrounding culture, they have a beauty from their creator that is more abundant than we can imagine and far outshines any earthly standard. So earlier, Paul tossed out the lens of cultural superiority and social hierarchy with his inversion of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. Now, with these three statements, he points to societal constructs and kingdom realities around strength, honor, and beauty, showing the Corinthians this is not the kind of body you think it is. There is a kingdom reality to this body that we need God's help to see. And 20th century Christians, 21st century Christians, I'm back a century, we need God's help to properly see Christ's body, the church, as well. Do you know how often I've heard folks interpret this passage as simple compassion? Like, be nice to the weaker, the less honorable, and the radically different, because Jesus loves them, and so should you. But that is not what is happening here in this passage. The body politic in Corinth or in Grimsby may have particular ideals and standards and positions of privilege around which it organizes itself. But the body of Christ is not like this. God has made, loved, redeemed, and placed the parts of this body, and he has filled every single one 
with the spirit. Those parts that the body politic might see as weak, inferior, and unsightly were knit together in the womb and transformed by God as strong, honorable, and beautiful. That is the reality of the body of Christ. And there is no stomach here to serve, like there is in Agrippa's body politic. There is no ruler between us. Just a bunch of us members of the body, drinking the same spirit and looking to Jesus for guidance. And what else are the parts doing? I don't know if you noticed in this passage, I did not until a few scholars pointed it out to me, but all of the parts that Paul mentions here are communicative parts of the body. Hands, feet, eyes, ears. These are the parts of the body that communicate with one another in different ways, relate to one another, care for one another. He does not portray us as a bunch of belly buttons and kneecaps, but as feet that move and hands that serve and eyes that see and ears that hear. We are active and relational parts. God has put this body together, Paul writes, so that there should be no division in the body but that the parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, all the parts rejoice. And that is why the act of biblical lament is so important and needs that spirit-informed lens. Because every time we view the body of Christ through the lens of the world's hierarchies and descriptors, we don't just hurt a part. We hurt the whole body, and we hurt ourselves. You know, one of the ways that we misread the body of Christ is by looking at one another and making assumptions about the spirit giftings of others based on how the world sees them. I have a good friend who's felt a lifelong call to ministry, and he's thriving in seminary, but has been told by a trusted and powerful mentor that his physical condition and speech impediment render him unable to serve the church. God does not care about our worldly hierarchies and descriptors. The Holy Spirit lavishes gifts on all parts of the body without consulting what we think is proper. And all of Scripture points to this. God calls Isaac to lead his tribe as a blind man, and then Jacob after him with his permanent limp after wrestling with the angel. Moses led his people and argued with Pharaoh, though his speech was poor. Scholars say probably a stutter. Who knows? Timothy was a leader who was young and had a chronic stomach ailment. And Paul himself, a church leader with a mysterious burden, a thorn in the flesh that he does not describe for us. What incredible gifts of ministry and mission for the body of Christ might we miss when we don't try to see one another in Christ? I wonder. What gifts might we discover in one another as we care for and accommodate one another?
staying connected as a body and paying careful attention to the Spirit's leading. I mean, I can already see some of the incredible gifts that God has helped us to recognize in one another here at Mountain View. But Paul cautions me not to rely on what I see, but to ask God what he is doing. And how do we do this? How do we, as Paul says, have equal concern for each other and suffer together and rejoice together? And how do we keep moving deeper into that spirit-led reality? Well, God has given Paul an idea because Paul's next line in Scripture is, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. Wouldn't that be a great cliffhanger to leave off on? It's the most excellent way. Go read your Bible. Happy Sabbath. I wouldn't do that to you, though. The answer is love, Paul says. He does not give us the Holy Spirit's 12-step plan for a flourishing body in any century. Instead, he waxes poetic about love for all of the next chapter, the entirety of 1 Corinthians 13. And I love love, and I know that God will lead us there and reveal to us all of the ways of honoring the body that he has in store for us. But I am hungry for details. How can we apply the method of love, love, love to the strong, honorable, beautiful body of Christ at Mountain View? in all of its physical and mental forms and with its rich variety of parts? How can we continually stay connected and caring for one another, accommodating the parts of the body whose diversity is disadvantaged in this world or whose stage of life disadvantages them in this world, whether young or old or in the middle, so that their God-given gifts can shine and bring honor to the body and glory to God. If you'd like to be part of that conversation, how, how can we do this? You are warmly invited to participate. I'm going to be gathering a group of interested folks to wonder and to pray, to discuss and to dream along these lines. The most excellent way committee, perhaps? And if you're here with us in the sanctuary, and if you're interested, there is a sign-up sheet, not quite at the welcome table, but the one next to it that has the basket for offerings for those who don't use the Bridge app or online. There's a sign-up sheet there, so feel free to make use of it. And you can also call or email me if you're interested in being part of this conversation. Those of you worshiping online, in the online part of the body, you're invited to this conversation as well. Email or call me, and if you lose track of my information or if you can't see your screen very well right now, just give the church office a call, let them know. And friends, if you are not up for meeting in a group and discerning together, that's fine. Please pray for this good work in the body. That's strange, huh? Ending a sermon with an announcement? with a call for volunteers. I could have left you at, I will show you the most excellent way. 
But I think God helping us, we need to find that way together. So if you'll pray with me. Lord, send your spirit. Make us thirst and show us your most excellent way. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen.